Hey everyone, if you're a fan of the show, please head over to MikeyOp.com and click the subscribe button. It's the best way to support us, and it's free. That's M-I-K-E-Y-O-P-P.com. Thanks. Hi, I'm Mike Oppenheim, and you are listening to Coffin Talk, Interviews with the Living, a weekly podcast that explores how our views on death affect the way we live our life. And this week, I actually have a guest that I promised you in episode four or five when I interviewed his wife, Marcy Borger, but we are now talking to Mr. Mark Borger, one of my oldest friends in the whole world. He is a property manager in the greater Washington, D.C. area, and uh, he has lived his entire adult life and most of his childhood with type 1 diabetes, so I wanted to ask him about that in conjunction with death and a lot of other things, but he's also a very smart and very well-read person who has a lot of strong opinions that I am dying to hear. So, Mark, how are you doing today? I'm good, Mike. How are you? I'm pretty good, Um, and I'm excited to pick your brain because when we became friends in college, uh, we would just sit around and talk a lot, and you always had interesting things to say, and uh, my philosophy was informed by yours. So, To start things out, can you tell our audience uh, how old you are, where you grew up, and what generation, if any, you think you belong to? Um, I am 41. I grew up in Bethesda, Maryland, a suburb of Washington, D.C., um, and I guess I consider myself, um, I am a Gen X by date. Like, for my age, I am in, firmly in Generation X. However, I'm probably more of a boomer. <laughs> yeah, um, that is definitely your reputation with our group of friends. And uh, it is interesting that it doesn't matter what the actual rule is. It's just kind of what you belong into. So that's why I ask, what do you identify with? Um, and so... As a uh, self-identified Gen X, but probably boomer, does that have anything to do with your philosophy on death and dying? Not really. I don't think so. It's more just the things that I'm interested in. Cool. Very cool. Um, And so I announced this at the beginning, and I I don't think it's rude of me to have said so because we talked ahead of time, but you were my first friend I ever met who had type 1 diabetes. And so before we even get into what it's like to have that, can you give just a brief rundown for our audience on exactly what that means and what that is? Um, Well, it means uh, that my... Pancreas does not create insulin. Um, so I discovered this when I was seven years old. Um, I was uh, constantly thirsty. Uh, I was peeing all the time. And a very quick doctor's visit, well, turned out that, uh, yeah, my blood sugar was through the roof. And so the way that they did it back in 1987, um, you just had to test your blood sugar you know, five or six times a day, uh, and every time you did that, you had to prick your finger, get a, a blood sample, put it on this test strip, wait 45 seconds for the results, and then you'd uh, take insulin, and it was, it was available in two different types, short-acting and long-acting. Uh, the short-acting would start working in about an hour and a half, and it would last three hours, and then the long-acting wouldn't start working for five hours, and it would last another five hours after that. So you were constantly having to watch your blood sugar, pay attention to everything that went into your body, um, which was really, it really sucked for a seven-year-old. You know? uh, and growing up, you know, not being able to, to eat sugar as much as, as your friends did, you know, uh, problems like pizza and birthday cake and all that, Halloween, it, it was rather, uh, rather frustrating. Um, but as I, as I got older, um, was able to, the, the technology changed dramatically. Uh, soon the insulin just worked instantly and it didn't have a big peak. Um, I was able to get an insulin pump so I could give myself insulin at any time without having to 
give myself a shot. So life definitely got easier as I got older. That was a great uh, synopsis. And I have a couple like mini questions to ask you about it. Um, the first question is, without the technology that we have, including the tests and stuff, what would have happened to you if like we lived in like a tribal culture like 700 years ago? I'd be dead in two weeks. Okay. From the time you were seven, like at seven? Yeah. Okay. So there's there's no actual cure like with like plants or like not eating certain foods? Well... You're assuming that uh, a tribal society would be able to diagnose the diabetes. I'm not sure that they would. But um, even if they could, I, I mean, you can, for a while, people were able to get um, insulin from pigs. So that, that was the first insulin treatments in the, uh, in the 19, or, you know, mid-1900s, pig insulin. And, uh, but I don't think that would be something that would be feasible for, you know, somebody living in, I mean, I don't know how technologically advanced this hypothetical tribe is, but... You know, if we're saying you know that that they're living in, in in the jungle or something like that. I don't. There's nothing that could that could cure it. Yeah, that's what I was more asking. Like, is it by not eating sugar or something? Like, if you were like a teetotaler, like with regards to what you ate. But I guess obviously that's not true. So the, the amount of sugar that's in just fruits, for example, uh, my, my endocrinologist has pretty much straight up told me, don't eat fruit. <laughs> you shouldn't eat fruit. It's unnecessary sugar. Oranges, all that stuff. Watermelon. Just, yeah. It, crushes your blood sugar. So I guess it's safe to say there was never a famous diabetic before the 1950s because they would have died before they were old enough to even do something to be famous. Is that sort of true? I, I can't think of an exception to that. Yeah. So, um, and I'm going to eventually ask you what do you think happens when you die, but before I get to that, I just want to like wrap up more of this like real just uh, in our contemporary society and your experience um, with, with diabetes specifically. So did you feel like you were lucky when you were seven because there was technology? Like, did you have any of those kind of thoughts or were you just like, I'm unlucky, I can't eat birthday cake, which is what I would have been, just to be honest. But, well, for, at seven years old, my answer was absolutely, I'm the unluckiest kid who's ever walked the face of the earth. How the hell is this happening to me? What did I do to deserve this? Um, and then it all, as I got a little older, I realized after the first two months of having this, you get being totally used to giving yourself injections multiple times a day, not crying when you do it, um, testing your blood sugar with no problems. But rather quickly, I'm like, yeah, this is this isn't that big of a deal. Um, the the bigger concern for me was actually like, well, I'll never be in the military because I wanted to be a marine. Um, and then the other thing was, well, I could lose my feet and my eyes if I don't take care of this. Um, those are the the two. Diabetics and poor control, um, they're, it doesn't take that long for you to have numbness in your feet uh, that can eventually require amputation, um, and then blindness due to diabetic retinopathy. So those were the two, you know, I, I, I wasn't all that worried about death, but being footless and blind sounded pretty horrendous. That was my biggest concern. <laughs> yeah. And then, uh, and then because I know you well, I know that you went to a Catholic all-boys school. So I'm curious, what was more scary, the message in the Catholic church or the actual message from a doctor? Like, hey, you could go blind and lose your feet. Oh, yeah. That was uh, – the message from the doctors was far more scary to me. Um, but then I also went to a Catholic co-ed grade school, and at least in the, in the uh, late 80s, early 90s, the way that it was taught to me um, – the religious stuff that was taught to me was very much like, oh, no, this is exactly how it is. Um, this isn't up for interpretation. You believe it or you don't. And uh, I, I was very skeptical uh, of a lot of that. 
So I, yeah, I've much, I was much more grounded in what my doctor is telling me and what I know can actually happen. Cool. So I'm going to ask you a, a twisted version of my stereotypical question. What do you think happens when you die? I'm curious, what do you think happens to you when you die now? And is that different from when you were seven and first diagnosed with a possible deadly uh, illness? That's a good question. Um, I would say now, I'm pretty sure that when you die, it's, you die. And the, the power button is turned off. Uh, it's that simple. Um, but uh, at seven, I, you know, I would have been, well, you get to go and, and, and go in front of St. Peter and uh, find out if you were good or bad and if you deserve to go to heaven and if you did deserve to go to heaven, then you got to spend all uh, eternity with your friends and family that you love and it was just going to be wonderful. But my, my seven-year-old self was a little bit typical for a seven-year-old. I wasn't I wasn't thinking on the grand meta scale all that often, so I went with whatever was told to me. And so, like, and that's what I opened by talking about was we became friends by just kind of having like weird, fun conversations. They never got too serious, and they never got too silly. And I, I appreciate that about you. So I'm curious, like, how the evolution of your mind went from I'm a very normal seven year old. I listen to what my elders tell me, and I'm like predicting this is what'll happen. To uh, the plug gets pulled, and it's all over. Um. I I guess probably that's a really hard question. I, I would say it's just my life experiences and just looking at the the mess, uh, the, the humongous loss of life that happened in the, in the last century from two world wars and, you know, nuclear weaponry. And you gotta you think, okay, so if that's all happening, is that all, are all these people then, you know, going to one of, you know, either to heaven or to hell, uh, or was this, was this just people's lives just ending? And I almost think it's almost more humane to think it's just, just, it's just over. Um, you know, people's pain and suffering just ends and that's it. Um, I mean, that's not a particularly good answer, but I guess, I don't know, just, just looking at everything as much as I would love to see my grandfather again when I'm dead, or as much as I'd like to see the dogs that I've had that I love that passed away, as I get older, I just think, okay, my time with them was, was my time with them. And the, to expect it to have it again is, is unrealistic. So it's kind of interesting, and I don't disagree with you at all, just to be clear, but what you're kind of saying, and I'm rewording it, is the lack of humanity of the last century has convinced you that the only humanity that could exist to be humane would be no afterlife because you can't sort out the chaos. Is that sort of correct? I guess um, I, I'm not too thrilled with my answer to especially the first part of it. to this question, because I, I, I it's a really hard answer, but um, I just, I got to think that life, if you live it correctly, um, that should be a your reward, you know, um, expecting an afterlife. I, I think society is kind of, if, if you were to look at, at the, the planet earth 3000 years ago, you know, from like, let's say, you know, someplace in, in space, you're looking down on this cre this creation called earth and you're seeing the different groups of people living together. One of them almost, one of the necessities to creating people who who don't just act on their base impulses and instincts, which we have to 
multiply, to stay alive, uh, to survive. A lot of those instincts lead to death and violence and rape and horrible things. So in order to minimize that, they had to come up with, uh, you could look at this group and say, you know, they need to have faith in something in order to become better. So like you look at the Ten Commandments, they are literally going against, a lot of them are going against our direct instincts for survival. You know, don't procreate with every woman there. Don't kill somebody if you don't have to. I mean, it doesn't even say if you don't have to. It just says don't kill. Don't steal from someone else. Well, you might need to kill. You might need to steal to stay alive. So we're, we're creating a system with religion to make us better, but, but just to make us civil, to make society exist. You know, we're not in like a Mad Max world where it's kill or be killed. And that's, I think religion is required for that. And then in order to get people to believe in religion and go along with it, you do have to have some promises. So there has to be a promise of an afterlife. So looking at, at the way, you know, looking through history, you sort of say, okay, well, this makes sense for, the, for how everything shook out. I completely see why this was there. You know, don't eat pork. Well, because at the time, pork is a filthy animal and it could get you sick very easily. Well, that kind of changes now because we have, as Chris Rock said, we have refrigeration pork as your friend, you know, <laughs> but, but you, we have these rules that were created to advance, advance us as people. So when it comes to the afterlife, I sort of look at it like, yeah, it's a really nice thought. And if I was, you know, in, in the feudal system in 1300 Britain, that would, sure. I'd be all in. I'd be going to church all the time, praying for salvation, but I'm, I'm here in uh, Northern Virginia, circa 2021, and I I think a little differently now. Yeah. So, um, first of all, like in in teaching, they have a term for what you described, and it's I've never heard anyone apply it to religion, but I totally agree. It's called scaffolding, which is like when you build, you know, like when you build a building, you put scaffolding up and then you tear it down. So you're saying religion was scaffolding to hurt us into a nicer social group that doesn't kill itself and each other as much. Yes, one that follows rules. You know, and, and so when you, you're the, the friend of mine who's the biggest war expert I know, and I, and I mean that really kindly and complimentary. Like you read a lot, you watch a lot, and oh, thank you, I'm so flattered. <laughs> so I had a feeling this would come into play on the podcast, and I was hoping it would because I like to hear your opinions. So how can you relate your feeling of religion creating rules that we needed to World War One and World War Two, which were like rule wars like meaning like world war one there was like a rule about the trench warfare absolutely and then there's a rule about weapons of mass destruction well also world war one all those rules were eventually broken by both sides exactly yeah gas was completely utterly prohibited and then when we it turned out that we were just forcing charges into uh maximum machine guns fruitlessly gas seemed like a, a necessary evil and both sides quickly used it um <laughs> the germans tried to outlaw the uh the 12 gauge pump action shotgun which we use to great effect in the trenches so yeah breaking rules in war and and religion i think the biggest thing religion has to do with uh in war is the effect on the soldier himself and and his commanders um commanders are less likely to make bold or reckless or you know decisions that could cost the lives of their troops if they think that they're going to have the answer for it in the in the afterlife and a soldier, you know, can reconcile all the carnage that he's seeing around him 
um, for God. Well, I mean, maybe not. Maybe he can't reconcile, but he can always try to. Uh, God can be there, or the religion can be there as a, a support for them. So, on the whole, I, I mean, I'm not sure exactly what what answer you're looking for here, but how to how to reconcile the World War One and World War Two with religion? It's very hard to, in all honesty. Uh, I'm actually, I, I think what I meant to ask, but I didn't, is, uh, do you think we still need the scaffolding? Okay, so. Well, that scaffolding was, I think that scaffolding was there. It was, it was absolutely still there, um, even though I think most of the construction was complete, if that makes sense. Um, and I, I don't think we sort of started to turn away from that until the that the World War II generation had their kit. Um, and, and that's when the, I think the shift began. Uh, you saw more and more people saying, the ways of the past. This doesn't need to happen this way. Okay, here's a birth control pill. Okay, you don't have to just marry them. Uh, you don't have to save yourself for one man anymore. That changed everything. So, uh, but that expanded a lot of people's possibilities. You know, for what we could, for what life could be. It wouldn't be uh, the. Well, I think I think what I I want to get back to because I I do like your talk about World War Two, and I do think you're actually tying things together a lot. I think the the part I'm trying to trace back to is what I never asked you, which is you're actually a pretty. Well, okay, I'm going out on a limb here, but I've known you for more than 20 years, and you're a very ethical person, in my opinion. Um, you have your own ethics, and you follow them, and I don't really ever see you break from them. Uh, I could give personal examples or, like, vague ones, so I guess the vague one I would give is just I've never really heard you gossip or, like, talk negatively about other people. I've just heard you talk to people, and you, you're the same around everyone, and I, and I admire that, and... Uh, and so I'm curious, that's just one example, like I said, there's many others. So you're not convinced that there's an afterlife. You're not convinced that there's any strict morality to this universe. You're actually really aware of the lack of morality, the lack of humanity. You've cited many examples. So why is it that you're moral? Well, I just don't want to be a dick. I mean, <laughs> I, I, I wish there was a bigger... Uh, I, mean, I never thought about it like that. I, I just always... You make more friends being nice than you do, you know, being standoffish and backstabby and all that. It's also just easier. Like, I think about, um, you know, uh, the the chimp scene in two thousand one Stanley Kubrick film, which is supposed to be like, you know, okay, the, the chimps beat each other to death with the with the bones, and that's the start of weaponry. I guess that's the message he's trying to get to. I always looked at that. I'm fighting over this little puddle of water as sort of, well, this is why we make allies. You know, it's easier to be friendly with other people, knowing that they will help you. They won't stop you from getting the water. And if other people try to come and take the water, they will be your allies. So it always seems to me to make more sense to just, you know, make friends, uh, be nice. Don't, don't wrong people. I guess like, I'm, I, I'm not saying I've never wronged people. I've wronged plenty of people. I've, it's always just natural to me to try to to be nicer to people. Okay, I mean, I, I accept that answer, but it's not as um, I, th I think you're you're downplaying something that that is going on in your own head. Uh, so I want to ask the same question, but I want to apply it to anger management. Um, your your career 
would make me go insane. Well, I don't think you're that bad because you're a property manager and you haven't been fired. <laughs> and you have to go to court and deal with a lot of stuff and a lot of bureaucracy. You have to deal with the bureaucracy of the courts. You have to deal with the bureaucracy of the clients. You have to deal with uh, carrying a second cell phone everywhere you go so people can call you in emergencies that aren't emergencies. Uh, that is that just pure like self-protection to keep your job? Or, or do you actually see like a, a real point in being nice to all these people? Well, first of all, I'm not nice to all these people. I try to be, but I'm not. Okay, uh, good point. Yeah. <laughs> there's, there are times when it's just like you, you end up, you're pushed to the limit, and like, how many times can I tell this person the same thing? And they they come at me with the exact same question. I, I, sometimes I, I, you know, I have a limit there. But for the most part, I'm, I just try, try to treat people the way I would want to be treated myself. Um, you know, I, we've all had bad customer service. Uh, experiences in our life and every time I have one I make a mental note of it like you'll note to self if I'm ever in that situation uh, if I'm ever that guy in this situation don't behave like you behaved I try to remember that because when I get really irritated I tend to have a bit of a short fuse um, and I I always try to be careful I try to remember that like uh, I can lose my cool rather quickly um, so what whatever this person does to make me get there, remember that. Remember it. Try to work it. Try to get better at it. And also, don't do that to other people because they might have a short fuse. I, I don't know. I, I just do, and I also try. I have to keep my job. <laughs> That's obviously a big part. And my my um, my company is my family's company, so my name is on there. I I couldn't think of a worse Yelp review. Then you know Mark Borger of Borger Management is a total piece, of and here's how he wronged me. Like, well, no, no, my name's on there. I, I, I can't, I can't let that happen. Yeah. Okay. That's a very well thought out and good answer, and I totally understand it all. And so I think I want to confirm something just to make sure for our audience and myself. So, do you call yourself an atheist, meaning you deny the existence of God? I'd say I'm an agnostic. Um, I can't. I, I look at everything, and I tend to think that. It's a little the God that we have that I've been taught to believe in. I don't believe in that God, but I can't look at the at the entire at the entire planet of Earth, all that we've accomplished, and say that it's you know just like okay, there, there was no other. There's nothing else at work here. Just just you know cells mutating and people evolve, creatures evolving. I don't know. It seems like a bit much. I, I don't know. I'm not, I don't claim to know what God there there is and how he or she wants us to behave. But I wouldn't be surprised at all if there is some sort of guiding force to this to this civilization. Cool. Very cool. Um, that answer both surprised me and did not surprise me. So I was very happy with it. And I want to kind of put you on the spot and. This is a, uh, I actually can delete this if you don't like this question, but I'm curious. Um, one of the reasons I believed in romantic love my whole life is because I met you right around the time you met who would end up being your wife, um, who I already interviewed. So I met you first, you were my friend, and then I met her. And the reason that matters to me is like, I saw it from your side, not from her side. And I was very uh, impressed. I was very happy for both of you. And, you know, I was at your wedding and like, I really, really believed in your marriage and I still do. And you are 
absolutely still together and you have two great kids and all that. So I'm curious, like, do you ever look on that, just the fact that you met Marcy, your wife, and think, hey, maybe there's more to this universe? Like, does that ever provoke that feeling in you? Um, yeah, that has. Um, the other times, the other things that have were the birth of my children. Um, you know, I mean, you see your kids being born and it's, it changes everything in your head. Your head, and, and I, not saying that that's God. It could be a natural instinct that like, okay, now, um, you know, woman have baby, me job, stand in front of cave and kill anything that comes into cave. Like that could be the instinct I was feeling, but it, it just, it's overwhelming. Um, but with my, with my wife, I, I honestly feel like I'm just the luckiest guy who could, is, who, who's on earth. Um, I was in a, I was dating a, a horrible person. I mean, I don't know, it's a horrible person, but I was dating somebody that was not right for me at all for the first two years of college, which is just the stupidest thing you could ever possibly do. You know, and, and then all of a sudden I, I, we, we start to break up and my roommates are throwing a party. And I remember, I, I'll never forget the first time I saw her and I was like, Oh my God. Okay. I have to, I've got to do whatever I can do to get this girl's phone number. And if I get her phone number, I'm going to marry this one. This is it. Like I was pretty sure from the very beginning. And luckily enough, I got her phone number and it worked out pretty well for me. <laughs> so, but I think it was pretty much, you know, if there is a, if there is a, a Christian God, yeah, then that was him at work. Uh, if it was luck, then I'm very lucky. So we started out the podcast by talking about how when you were seven, you were the unluckiest kid in the world because you had type 1 diabetes. And now we're nearing the end of the podcast and you said you're the luckiest man in the world because you met your wife. I love that. Um, so as I always do, I always give my guests uh, the last uh, spot of the show. So you can use this space to say virtually whatever you want. Uh, there are a few exceptions, but I don't think you'll meet those. So go ahead. You have the floor. Advice for humanity. Advice for humanity. Um, whew, I would say don't take yourself too seriously. We can't. Uh, our society right now is just so angry and so accusatory. Uh, and all, all we really need is a, a sense of humor that we can't laugh at each other and ourselves. That That's going to lead to horrible stuff. Everybody needs to have a sense of humor. I love it. I totally agree. That made me very happy, uh, as did this whole interview. So thank you so much for helping us put another nail in the coffin. Sometimes I, I worry about people who don't believe there's a God and say, when the lights go out, it's all over. And so when you explained how you can think that and how it actually helps you be a good person, I found a lot of like courage and strength in that. So that's really cool. For those of you listening at home, I want to again thank you and also ask you to please subscribe if you haven't already and give us a positive review on Apple if you can. And uh, that's about it for now. This has been Coffin Talk, Interviews with the Living. My name is Mike Oppenheim, and we will see you soon.